Welcome back to Fiverr Flop, a podcast for the best and worst historical fiction has to offer. I'm your host, Erin. And I'm Grace. And each week we'll be reading a different historical fiction book to see if they're a five or a flop. Our theme for season one is reading around the world, so we'll be reading two books for continent, and today's book takes us to Africa. And we're reading Homegoing by Yaa Jesse. A big one. This is one, one of the more popular, I think, of the ones that we've done at least so far. I agree with that. Um, I had definitely heard of it before the pod, which I can't say for everything we've read. Yeah, um, and a few of the other ones that we had read were like really big, but came out like a while ago. Homegoing came out in 2016, yeah. so it's still pretty topical. It's been a little bit, but it's in the zeitgeist, I would say. How early we record this, but it's just after Thanksgiving. And as the weather's changing, I've gotten a little bit of a cold, so I probably sound a little nasally right now. Yeah, we um, might both be a little bit sniffly. We can edit out most of it, but if we'll, we we'll sound a little different, it's because we have the sniffles. Please forgive us. Everyone we know has the sniffles, and we spend so much time together, it was only a matter of time. But one thing that's been super exciting for me lately is I've been binging Survivor again. The perfect activity for when you have a cold. Exactly. And this is a big deal for me because I binged Survivor a while ago, but that was in my severe depression era when I was living in North Carolina for a very brief period of my life. Um, so I don't think I fully enjoyed Survivor then as much as I did as a little kid growing up watching it. Not good associations. No. But now that I'm in my healthy, thriving era... Oh my god, I love Survivor. I was trying to tell Santiago, my boyfriend and notoriously Grace's roommate, about how I would be awesome on Survivor. And he's like, you won't even go camping with me. You would not last on Survivor. But the thing is, all those challenges, the eating ones where people throw up because I have to eat like chicken embryos, I would eat anything. And I would kill those challenges. So I would be a huge asset to my Survivor team. Also, no qualms about stabbing someone in the back. And, like, it's about the strategizing. You don't just have to survive in the forest. Like, it is true that you won't go camping, but, like, you have the other parts of it. Exactly. And it's the idea of, okay, now I'm going off on a tangent, but there's old school survivor versus new school survivor. New school is strategy. Old school is survivor. Mm -hmm. Like, surviving. But you're not going back in time to be on survivor. You're going to be on the new survivor. Exactly. Um, And everyone on survivor kind of gets TikTok famous now, which I have some experience with. Wow. So you really already have a leg up. Exactly. Wow. Um, What's new with you? (laughs) Well, I also have like a binge plan laid out. Um, You perhaps are familiar with our famous data scientist, Ashley Bell. Yes, of course. Yes. Well, Ashley and I have decided that we're going to binge um, lesbian period dramas. Of course. Sounds about right for the audience. The perfect fall activity. Um, And so we started yesterday and we watched The Girl King. Have you ever heard of that movie? No. It rings a bell. Okay. It's about Christina of Sweden, who was very interesting because she was like queen of Sweden and then she abdicated her throne and like left and like became a Catholic and like, you know, just was like wiling out. Okay. Um, But the movie was horrible. Like it was very low budget. No. Well, actually, there's a Royal Diaries book about Christina, but they're not related. Okay, so when we do our children and young adult historical fiction season? Yeah, we need to do Christina of Sweden because she's, you know, an LGBTQ icon. Yes. However, this movie is really bad, but it was, like, luckily bad kind of in a way where we could, like, laugh about it, you know? Like, it was just really low budget, and the accents were interesting, um, you know, so. Well, I'm glad. That sounds like a good activity for the winter i also know you all watched gentleman jack a while yeah ago. we finished both seasons of gentleman jack and that's what kind of spawned this because then we realized we were like lesbian period pieces are so like are a huge thing um and you know we have some good stuff that we're going to put on the list we're going to watch mm-hmm. the handmaiden 
we're gonna watch Colette. You know, we have some good things on there. Okay. Um, but we not everything is free, and some things are on like stars or whatever. So we have to hunt them all down. Okay, very nice, mm-hmm. very nice. Aside from what you're binging, yes. what have you been reading? Um, well, aside from binging books for the pod, so a lot of historical fiction. Oh, yeah? I just started a new book this morning. It's called Dear Committee Members by Julie, excuse the pronunciation, Schumacher, I think. I may have heard of that. So if you elaborate, I might know what you're talking about. So my best friend Sarah recommended it to me a while ago, and I finally got it off hold at the library. It's basically written, it's like an epistolary story, so it's all letters, but it's all written by like this one professor's letter of recommendation for like his students and stuff. Oh, I've definitely heard of this. So the writing style is really interesting to me, and interesting to me. And again, I'm only like a couple pages in, mm-hmm. so I'm not really sure how it's going to tell a story yet. But I'm really excited. It has kind of mixed reviews on Storygraph, but I don't know. I like a funky, stylistic story. Yeah, I feel like that turns out a lot. Where if a book is polarizing, it will often kind of land somewhere between the like 3.6, 3.8 range, like yeah. on Storygraph or Goodreads. That 3.66 is the most common number I see on there. Yeah, so it's you won't really be sure if, until you read it if you're one of the people who falls in the bad camp or if you fall into the good camp. Yes. I feel like stuff that is under, like, 3.5 is bad. Yeah, Almost I always. Agree. I agree. Mm-hmm. At least per our opinions on it. Because well, someone's always going to like a book. And I think that's what's so fun about reading is because people like shit you don't like. Yeah, and weirdly, I feel like if you get into genre stuff and it's rated really, really high – like 4.2 or higher, that honestly doesn't mean it's going to be good. Exactly. Like, I just finished, we already talked about how I I read Fourth Wing, and I wasn't the biggest fan Mm -hmm. of it, but it has an insanely high rating, I think because everyone who reads it knows that they like that genre. Um, So I think it's a good time to get into our book of the week, Homegoing. And Grace, would you like to share the synopsis with us? Absolutely. So, Ghana, 18th century. Two half-sisters are born into different villages, each unaware of the other. One will marry an Englishman and lead a life of comfort in the palatial rooms of the Cape Coast Castle. The other will be captured and arrayed on her village, imprisoned in the very same castle, and sold into slavery. One of Oprah's best books of the year, Homegoing follows the parallel paths of these sisters and their descendants through eight generations, from the Gold Coast to the plantations of Mississippi, from the American Civil War to Jazz Age Harlem. Yah Jesse's extraordinary novel illuminates slavery's troubled legacy, both for those who were taken and those who stayed, and shows how the memory of captivity has been inscribed on the soul of our nation. And I know we said this book is for our Africa continent. Um, it also crosses over into North America, as you can tell based on that synopsis. Um, but since the theme of it is homegoing and reconnecting with your roots and your home, it counts for Africa. Yeah, we're going to be reading a lot of books, not necessarily this season, but I think over the course of the yes. podcast that hop between places, just because, you know, it's the interconnectedness of our world, exactly. etc. But since the bulk of this book takes place in Ghana, uh, and the roots of it are all really rooted exactly. there, we counted this for Africa. Exactly. Um, and I do want to preface our discussion by saying I have a little bit of a bias here, because this is my favorite style of book, is a generational novel when it goes through the different generations, as this one does, um, I eat that shit up. I love it. Um, one of my favorite books is actually a non-historical fiction. It's called A Secret History of Witches, and it was stylistically the same. Like, it followed um, from mother to daughter to daughter. Um, and so that's something I really like, and I think that's a really effective way to tell a story, especially a story that spans a long period of time. Yeah, I also love a generational novel, but I'm not sure I've ever read one that takes it to this extreme. Like, normally I think you hit, like, 
three generations, this takes you to a really long period of time. It says eight generations in the synopsis. Yeah. So you really, really get a long stretch of time. And again, like it says, this is two separate family lines that split off from these two half-sisters that don't know the other exists. No, and you basically get one chapter per character. Um, and for reference, this is also at the beginning of the novel, and I have it pulled up in front of me. They, The author does include a family tree for us, so you can kind of track where you're at, because each chapter, it flips between, like, the two halves. So, like, one is... So the two sisters are Effia and Essie, and so the first chapter is Effia, then Essie, then Effia's child, then Essie's child, and so on like that. And they skip forward in time pretty significantly with each chapter. Yes, they do. Um, so, it, you know, 20 years, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. Um, but it's not, you're not provided with years at the title of every mm-hmm. chapter. You figure out where you are via context clues. Like exactly. maybe at the beginning of every chapter, it takes you a few pages to realize who you're with, where you are, and when you are. Yeah, you have to get oriented. Um, but let's talk a little bit more about the author. Yes. So, Yaa Jessie, this was her debut novel. Again, wow. like I said, she debuted with it in 2016. Which yeah. is an incredible novel for a debut. Very impressive. And this, it was really, really well received. I have This a, and Fruit of the Drunken Tree were both debuts, right? Yeah. Wow. So, Congratulations to these authors. When Homegoing came out in 2016, it was awarded the debut book prize from two different organizations, the National Book Critics Circle and the Penn Hemingway Foundation, mm-hmm. both of which are very prominent. Uh, it won the American Book Award, and it was part of the five under 35 list from the National Book Foundation, because when this book came out, I believe Yaa Jesse was only 27 or 28. She was very, very young. Wow. Yes. Um, what are we doing with our lives? We're starting a podcast, Erin. That's even more <laughs> important. I don't know about that, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but if you read the book and then you look at Yaa Jesse's background, you see that she's incorporated a lot of her um, elements from her personal life into the broader beats of the story. Uh, she was born in Ghana, but she was raised in Alabama, and she attended Stanford University for her bachelor's, and those things are all true of various characters in the book, especially yeah. towards the end, the newer generation kind of have that exact background. Definitely. Um, and she also has an MFA from the Iowa Writers Workshop, which I just thought I would throw in because obviously that's a very prestigious writing program. Fun fact, I actually did a summer camp at the University of Iowa for writing. It wasn't their writer's workshop, obviously, because that's... But it was adjacent. But it was adjacent, and it was at Iowa. Um, So big props to University of Iowa. I have special love for for Iowa. Yeah. So she has written uh, two books. One was Homegoing, and then the other was called Transcendent Kingdom that came out in 2020. It was also pretty well-reviewed, made some long lists for a couple of other prizes, and if we're following our pattern, then she's due for another book next year. So fingers crossed that we see that. Yeah, I would love that. Yeah. Had you read her other book before, or was this your first time reading any Ya Jesse? This was my first time with Ya Jesse. Um, however, I do have the other book called Transcendent Kingdom. I have the Amazon page pulled up. And just looking at this description, it is right up my alley. And you loved Homegoing immediately. Oh, yeah. So you definitely should read that because I think it hits like a lot of the – not the same beats. I think the structure of that story is very different. Yes. I don't think it's generational, but it has the same roots in Ghana and Alabama at Stanford. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think she's clearly emotionally pulling again from her oh, life yeah. for that work, 
which is part of what made Homegoing so special. Yeah, I remember I was texting you the entire time how much I love this book. So this caught me right off the bat. So probably after we finish recording, I'm going to be putting this one on hold at the library as well. Hell yeah. All right. Well, since we're getting into talking about the book and what we thought of it, should we give our disclaimer? Yes. So as usual, our disclaimer... Um, holds that our judgments come based on the book and characters within the book rather than any real historical figures they may have been based on, um, which I don't believe anyone in this book was actually based on a real-life historical figure. Correct me if I'm wrong, Grace. No, I don't think so. And also, as usual, we will be giving spoilers for the entire novel. We encourage you to read it if you have not yet and come back and join us when you're at a comfortable position to receive to receive spoilers. Yes, so let's first dive into what I think is the most interesting part of the book that changes how you interact with it, which is the structure yes. that we talked about a little bit before. Um, so it's in two parts, and each part gives you a few chapters, maybe six chapters, alternating between uh, Essie's line and Afia's line, yes. and they skip forward in time, and you only meet each character one time or you might see them in later chapters but you only would see them like one additional time if that and you never get their perspective again no and that's something I actually went back and forth with because I remember originally telling you that I did not like how we only had such a short amount of time with each character mm -hmm. but it wasn't even like a ding against the style of the book it's because you said oh I want to spend more time exactly, with these people I, some of the characters I liked so much I just wanted more of them um, some of them I didn't, but that's okay. We'll get into that later. But I think as I went on, I really started to like that because if you think about it, we all have generational huge lines of family. We know I, I can tell you maybe back to what my great grandma was like, and before that, I have no idea. Yeah, nothing. so it really is. We're only alive for such a brief period, and our stories are so brief, and there's so many others to be told. So to me, it kind of makes sense that we do just have these brief glimpses, especially when a lot of these characters in this book were in traumatic circumstances like slavery, like addiction, a wide variety of situations that their stories have often been lost to history. And also like so many people or so few people rather can look that far back in their family exactly. tree. But if they really wanted to, like you and I could probably go looking and find that yeah. information. Yeah, Jesse makes it a point to demonstrate to us that in these family lines that are interrupted by the transatlantic slave trade, they're not able to look back. Exactly. People are, are separated from each other forcibly, and they're not able to maintain those family connections. And that's how it's set up from the beginning is based on that division. Um, and it's the two family lines are divided, Effie's family and Essie's family. And Essie and her descendants are sold in the transatlantic um, slave trade brought over to America by Afia's family. Like, her family were part of the slavers that played a direct role in that. Yes. Afia is the first character that we meet. She's the point of view character for chapter one. And she is uh, a Ghanaian, of Ghanaian origin. And her family marries her to the white Englishman <laughs> who is the governor of Cape Coast Castle. Yes. And Cape Coast Castle doesn't, it makes multiple appearances. We come back to it at the end of the novel, which takes place um, pretty like around in the 60s or 70s. No. Is that a little was, early? I think it was later than that. Close to present day? I think it was a lot closer to present day. Um, which probably. takes place in like the roughly the late, late 20th, early 21st century. Yes. Um, we come back to them closer to present day to Cape Coast Castle. Um, 
but that's the kind of the turning point for the whole book because Essie is kept in the dungeons below and Ifia lives in the palatial rooms above. Yes. So that one location houses both sisters and yet like the division between them and their families could not be farther apart. Exactly. And it brings up a lot of complex emotions that carry through the out- throughout the entire novel of you know, the guilt associated with being a part of that versus the anger at being on the receiving end of it mm-hmm. um, and how it kind of perpetuates cycles of abuse in each family line or each part of the two trees. Mm-hmm. And I did like the characters and I did like the setup. I'm with you. I love a generational novel, mm-hmm. especially I feel like in historical fiction it works so well. But my favorite thing was just how yeah, Jesse used this history and the setup that she chose for her novel to visually demonstrate to us the effect that mo- the actions of a few people can have, or like the fates of a few people can have on the whole rest of your line. Exactly. Um, seeing the consequences of Afia's marriage or Essie's kidnapping spiraling out for centuries um, is really impactful, and I think it gives an emotional weight to something that maybe you learned in a slightly more cold manner, like at school or yeah, something like, like that. Yeah, like a textbook knowledge. Yeah. Um, and I do find it interesting. So both of these lineages both wind up in America for two very different reasons and two very different circumstances. Essie's descendants wind up in America, obviously, through the slave trade. Um, they stay there. They are in the South. Eventually, some of them move up to the North, and they're still just in very bad situations, like they're dealing with poverty, addiction, segregation, and continued racism in America. Whereas Effia's lineage stays in Ghana for the most part up until the end. I think it's about the last chapter um, with Marjorie, which is her last descendant spoken about. Her parents immigrated to America because they were her father was a scholar like he was doing research mm-hmm. so so it was an opportunity for them yes, to come to America exactly and it's so interesting that if you go way way back in your family line these two families started out in the same situation they had this Effia and Essie had the same mother and then just seeing how what I say what happened to these two women because you know as women at this point your choices are not your yeah. own. No, it was, Effia was married off as he was kidnapped. They did not have a choice in what happened. Mm-hmm. I Okay, what I liked about this book, in preparation for this podcast, I watched a couple of interviews with mm-hmm. Jesse talking about what she wanted out of this book. And she said it would have been very easy to make it like, you know, I think she was pun intended when she said this black and white yeah. and to demonstrate that all of the black characters were good and all of the white characters were evil, which certainly is a present component. Like yeah. we're not encountering a lot of super nice white people no. in this book um, because that was not the truth of yeah. people taken from Ghana for the transatlantic slave trade. Um, but the black characters, all of the first person perspectives that we get are from <laughs> black characters mm-hmm. and they are not one-dimensional. They do bad things. They do good things. They try and atone for bad things that they've done. Um, We get historical perspectives of a gay man. We get a woman who is struggling with her mental illness, and we never really know what what happened to her because in the time they didn't have the words to describe it. They had a woman who was having sex outside of marriage and was known for being an adulteress. Mm -hmm. Um, We're not given perfect narratives from all of these we're not given perfect victim narratives no. and that makes the book all that more interesting because Yaa Jesse is interested in writing about 
real people and she's not creating characters to be symbols. She's exactly. making characters to be characters. Exactly. And so sometimes that means you encounter people who you don't particularly enjoy, but that means the experience of reading the book is all the more real. Um, I don't think either of us inherently dislike unlikable characters. No, no. I think I can still like an unlikable character. Um, you just have to take it in context of the novel and that not everyone is – because if every character was perfect, it'd be the most boring book in the world. Mm -hmm. And obviously we're coming at it from a little bit of a distance because we just simply aren't familiar with Ghanaian culture. No, we're not. Um, so it was very interesting to learn about and kind of see the duality of – because growing up in America, we learn about slavery. We learn what's happening here in America. I don't know about you, but a lot of my education throughout school was very America-focused. 100%. So I kind of blindly and maybe naively as a result of that was like, I have absolutely no idea what was going on in Ghana at this mm -hmm. time. No, and even the history that you do get, I feel like I got a relatively <laughs> comprehensive historical education yeah. at least in my public school upbringing comparatively, I think, to maybe what I've heard from other people. Yeah. But that did not include that did not include a lot of African history. No. Um, so for the sections of the book that take place in Ghana, which we like we've said is like the not the bulk of the book, but maybe like seventy five percent of the book, I would say the chapters are based in Ghana. They talk about the um, the two different lines, Essie and Afia's lines, are respectively Fanti and Asante, mm -hmm. which are two different Ghanaian kingdoms. Both of these I've learned from looking them up are in southern Ghana. Um, and those are, you know, those are two words that I never heard before. Um, so I appreciate this book for, you know, its goal is obviously not to set out to teach me, yeah. but as a consequence of its popularity and its existing, it did do that. Yeah, which is great. Yes. So, and I appear, like, it seems like the, the history, which we'll get into later, seems pretty accurately reflected. Yeah. But even, it's not so much that as what as what Yajessi was able to do with the history to give it that em more emotional component. And I was wondering, because this is something I had in my notes, kind of jumping onto a different thread here. Mm -hmm. Did you have any thoughts on the symbolism of fire and water for each family lineage? No. Tell me more about that. So basically, we learned how it starts is that Effia and Essie's mother, so their shared link, was captured and held prisoner by um, Afia's family. Yes. Which obviously before she was born and then had her baby. And then she burned down the hut they were in to escape. Throughout Afia's lineage, we have this idea of fire coming into play. Um, one of her descendants sets her hut on fire and two of her children burn alive. Throughout her descendants' chapters, there are images of men being burned at the stake and fire comes really heavy-handed into play. Whereas in Essie's lineage, water is a lot more prominent. You have mm. the water from, obviously, the ocean journey for the slave trade. Um, and then this whole thing at the end about Marcus not being able to swim and, like, mm. having this huge aversion to water. But then the novel actually ends with the last descendant of each half, so Marjorie on Afia's side and then Marcus, coming together and returning to Ghana and going in the water um, by the castle where both of their ancestors were. So they kind and neither of, of them know that. No, neither of them know that, um, which is kind of this beautiful, symbolic... Peaceful ending yeah. to this, yeah, to all of these years of, of strife. And so, you know that they're not over, but you know that the better days are the ones that are ahead. And it's very interesting to me that they both wind up in the water because it kind of puts out that fire of 
that kind of divided their two lives like the fire that their mother burned down the hut and that's kind of how they wound up split off Mm -hmm. um and then they're united by water the water which carried their great 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 etc grandmother over on the slave trade well and then there's also the element of mame is the the top figure for this whole lineage who is the mother of both essie and afia and she gives them both a black stone as a necklace um and essie when she is taken across uh, the sea to America loses hers. But Afia's line carries that stone all of the way down. And at the very end, the last descendant of Afia takes her necklace off and puts it on the last descendant of of Essie. Um, And so that's also like a full circle moment that serves to shore up the symbolism of of them both being in the water. This book had a lot of symbolism throughout. I will say I was so nervous that it was going to be really cheesy and that Marcus was like going to find the other stone that Essie lost like hundreds of years ago. So I'm super glad that didn't happen. I know. It would have been bad if it did happen. I was very sad that it was just going to remain there forever. I know. But that's, you know, the book, it's a realistic book. It's not sugarcoating anything for you. Yeah. The symbolism in this book was very heavy, but I don't think it was heavy handed. I also don't think, I don't think it was too hard to understand. And let me compare that to Fruit of the Drunken Tree. When you and I both did not get the symbolism of that tree. No, not at all. And maybe because it's, much more difficult to have like easily accessible symbolism in your real life. Yeah. Like these characters didn't exist. So she was, so Yah Jesse was able to write in all of these instances of fire and water. Mm-hmm. Um, but even if something is based on your real life, a book is a book and exactly. the final product is what we're looking at, exactly. not the real people behind so it. I think the symbolism was a lot more well done, probably mm-hmm. in this book out of any we've read so far for the pod. Yeah, I would say so. I feel like a lot of the others that we have done dealt much more in I won't say being literal but in conveying emotion through the historical culture yes um and this one obviously did do that but there were more literary elements sprinkled in this one did have beautiful prose I'm especially in my head comparing it to something like Hamnet which we thought its biggest strength was its prose agreed and this book also had this strong prose but Hamnet's was a bit more showy, a little bit more flowery. And Homegoing, it was a bit more to the point. And yes. a lot of the beauty of the book came from its structuring and its storytelling and less from specifically the language. Yeah. It for, made use of literary elements. Yes. For me, um, the biggest strength of this book was the organization and the setup of it. 100%. Before we move on, I want to talk a little bit about the title. Yes. Um, so I think it honestly takes you to the end of the book to, you have the title mulling over in your head. Mm-hmm. Um, because obviously even when you pick it up before you read the back of the book, when you just see the title homegoing, yeah. you think that's not a word because it isn't. You think about the word homecoming. Yes. And so the whole time you're reading, I don't, yeah, Jesse wants you to be thinking why homegoing, why this title. Yes. And I think it's because for all of these characters by the end, because even those who have remained in Ghana have left it. Yes. That it's not a homecoming if there is some place that is your home, but you're not familiar with it. Exactly. That's what I figured out. To me, that's what the title means. It could be wrong, no. but I think it's about losing that grip on what your home is, having your home taken from you. That's what how I see it as well, because for Marcus, he is going back to his ancestor's home. Like I'm sure he has some sense of identification with it, but he's never been there. 
So he's not coming back to something. He's going there for the first time mm-hmm. and uniting that uniting that idea of home with his present reality of his family was taken from there. It's interesting th- to think about the the possibility of going to your home for the first time. Yes. Because normally if so, you've never been somewhere that mean that precludes it from being yeah. your home. So that's um bittersweet. It is I bittersweet. Think, I, I, I did find the ending very very bittersweet. Which is good because if she had wrapped it up like we said on kind of a saccharine note, we it would have really not rung true. No, cuz it's also like now both of these families are in America and the black struggle in America is not over. Racism is still very present in society. These characters and their descendants are still going to have hardships. Mm-hmm. But the hardships of the past and that their ancestors went through have taken on a different meaning now. Yes, they shift, they change, and we see that. We yes. see that every generation has its struggles, but they're not the same as those of the previous generation. Yes. Even during the time of slavery, we see freed black people living in Baltimore with uh, having to carry their papers around everywhere they go. We see slavery being abolished and we see the beginning of the convict leasing system which is put in place to substitute for slavery. We see all of these different things that take different forms as the generations go on. Yeah, I kind of like that we're not spending too much time discussing each individual character and their story. A, because it's so complex there's so much for us to talk about. Mm -hmm. But B, because each chapter in the book was such a brief moment that it's that overall theme that becomes more important. And I actually pulled out a quote from very early in the novel that I thought kind of summed up the theme pretty well as I am prone to do when I'm reading things. Please do. Um, And this was on page 38. Weakness is treating someone as though they belong to you. Strength is knowing that everyone belongs to themselves. Yeah. And I thought in in the earliest sense, this is very clear of as it comes into the play in the slave trade mm. and literal ownership versus freedom. Yes. But I think it also continues throughout the entire novel in different senses because it's the thought of, you know, some of the characters are in very bad relationships and it's like, where does that sense of like, quote, ownership versus freedom come in Mm -hmm. and that strength versus weakness and the ability to kind of define your own story and be able to go to a place that's your home but not quite your home. Mm -hmm. Even through all of this, the demonstration of the characters as part of this overarching historical narrative, we never lose sense of them as individual people. Yes. They were all very, very different. Oh, extremely. Um, And I think I do want to just spend a moment sharing what some of my favorite chapters were. Um, Let's go for it. Right off. I think I'll just, I'll I'll highlight my three tops. So starting from the beginning, Essie was one of the two original sisters. So one of the original points of view. And she was the one who was kidnapped and sold into the slave trade. Mm -hmm. And I really liked it because this chapter for me set up a lot of the dynamics of society. And like it gave a bigger picture of what was going on in Ghana. Um, And I thought her narrative of her, you know, having the necklace from her mother and losing it, that was so powerful. And it really set up for me that that necklace was going to be a symbol later Mm -hmm. on. Um, My next favorite was actually Essie's daughter, Ness, who was um, in America. She was part, she was born into slavery. Mm -hmm. So she was on a plantation. Um, She married this other slave named Sam and they have a son, Kojo. And they're in the process of fleeing to the north when they got caught and it ended kind of 
like ambiguous like we don't really exactly find out what happens to Ness we can imply she was probably killed on her plantation because she was um stepping up or she was defending some of the other slaves like a young girl who had um like gone into a little tussle with the white son of the plantation owner um so we can kind of imagine how Ness's story ends Mm -hmm. and it's we have to imagine it does not end nicely for her but I thought she was one of the strongest characters because she definitely embodied that sense of, you know, strength is knowing that everyone belongs to themselves because she was such a selfless character. Yes, 100%. She was willing to be beaten and whipped on behalf of Sam, who probably, I don't even remember specifically what he did, but it's something meaning, like, very, very small that he probably would have been killed for. Um and it was said she had, like, the most gruesome star- scars anyone had ever seen on a slave, that sort of thing. Um, and she very much owned her own identity in a way that enabled her to be selfless and care for other people and, you know, leave her son with practically a stranger so he could have a better life. Mm-hmm. So she was incredibly powerful for me. 100%. And then finally, my absolute favorite character in his whole section was H. And H is also Essie's lineage. Um He's actually Kojo's son. And Kojo's wife, while she was pregnant with H, they were a free couple in Baltimore. But she was kidnapped and they're like, oh, she's a runaway slave. Let's sell her back, even though she had her paperwork and everything. So he wound up enslaved and eventually became free and then was part of that convict leasing system that Grace mentioned. Mm -hmm. So he had to go work in the coal mines. And he eventually was able to finish off his sentence and become free. And then he wound up joining a union and spoke on behalf of these other minors, some convicts, some not, and was able to advocate for them to improve their rights. And he was such an influential character for me because he was such of Essie's lineage. This was one of the first free characters we had who was able to become such an influential figure in their town amongst both black and white people in this coal mining town. And he really shaped, like you can see in the chapters from his daughter's perspective, how much of an influential figure he was. And this was kind of one of the first characters in Essie's lineage who was able to be a lasting figure in their children's memory because he had the opportunity to be. That was one of the things I was going to say. In the next chapter that follows, Willie is H's daughter. Yes. And she, her chapter has its own ups and downs. Um... But I really loved seeing that H was able to be such a loving father. Yes. That was like one of the most touching parts of the whole book was seeing all of the struggles that he overcame to be able to create um, this safe and happy life for his family where his children felt so loved by him. Because if you look at his story, he's not really able to know his parents. Kojo wasn't able to know his parents. And it's really beautiful that this is such a turning point where that relationship is allowed to exist. Yes, and it comes with the turning point where, like we said, H isn't the first free character, but he is the first free character after the abolition of slavery. Yes. So obviously he is still not entirely free. He becomes part of the convict leasing system, but there are still things that he never has to be afraid of again. Yes. And that he knows for his children they won't have to be afraid of. Yes. Now, Grace, are there any other characters you want to touch on that stories really stuck out to you? I really enjoyed Abina's chapter. Mm-hmm. She's part of Afia's lineage. So this still takes place in Ghana. Yes. 
And this is the chapter that I mentioned before, which focuses on a woman who is cast out because she is an adulterer. Um, And I really enjoyed seeing a character who chooses to do something in her own self-interest against the interests of the society. Mm -hmm. That's not even... Like, this story is one that could easily exist even if the transatlantic slave trade had never touched it. Yes. Um, and it does come into play with, you know, white Christian missionaries yes. in uh, in Ghana because when Abina flees her family, that's where she goes. Mm-hmm. But that kind of insular story, I really enjoyed that one that's almost limited to the self or to the family unit the same way that I enjoyed Willie's story about H. And then I enjoyed the story of Yaw, who is also part of Afia's lineage. Uh, and Very early, much towards the end. Yes. When Aaron mentioned that the story, there was a story of a woman who burned down her hut with her children inside, Yaw was the surviving child yes. of that woman. He was also the one whose family immigrated to America eventually for uh, scholarship opportunities. Yes, he's the scholar. Not scholar opportunities. Yes. And his story, again, I guess my favorites were the ones that were the most insular because his evolved around him falling in love yeah. um, and wanting to marry. And he's his working. Was so sweet. It was. It was really sweet. He was um, working towards his writing, which is about the liberation of Ghana from mm-hmm. the white colonialist forces. Um, but there was also this very emotional story tied to it. Um, which I really enjoyed. But I really think my favorite must have been Marcus's chapter, which is the one that closes the book with all of that symbolism that we discussed before of the two generations coming together in the water outside of Cape Coast Castle. I think that that was a very, it was a perfect ending, essentially, from Yaw Jesse. I didn't want anything more out of this book, which is crazy to say, because I would have loved to kept reading this book because I loved it. However, how it ended was so perfect that when I put the book down, I'm like, that ended exactly how it should. I'm glad there's no more. I'm glad there's no less. Exactly. It had a satisfying conclusion yes. that brought out emotions. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, any last points you want to bring up before we head into the history section? No, let's talk about it. Great. So when I was doing my research, honestly, I feel like I don't want to dwell a lot on the sections that were American. Yes. Because so much of it is stuff that if you are if you are American, you understand a lot of this. Yeah. Um, obviously, not every school system does an equally good job of teaching about the, you know, results of the American Civil War, of slavery, et cetera. But I don't also feel the need to rehash the beats that we hit in terms of the transatlantic slave trade, Reconstruction, the Great Migration, the Harlem Renaissance. Yes. I think that that's... Yeah, Jesse incorporated those things well, showed us realistic, you know, people within that. Exactly. They were accurate. Mm -hmm. Um, And she, I think, employed these things to very good effect in her book. But what I did look into a little bit more was the Ghanaian origin, because Mm -hmm. Yeah, Jesse has said that this this book was inspired by a trip that she took to Ghana. She was born there, but she was not raised there. So she didn't have the background in Ghana that some of the characters in the book did. And when she visited Cape Coast Castle, which is a real place, um, she was really struck by the dichotomy between the palatial upper rooms and then the dungeons where the slaves were kept before they were loaded onto ships, essentially, and sent across the sea. Um, Interesting. So Cape Coast Castle is real. We'll start there. It still stands. And actually, it is preserved as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Oh, okay. Yes. So it's very much a place that you can go and visit. It's actually part of UNESCO. The designation is with several other 
similar sites. Okay. Not so they kind of group it together. Yes. Okay. Um, and that's very common. Um, I know that there are several place, like separate structures in America that are linked together by yes. UNESCO. So what they said, there are Cape Coast Castle, I believe is actually the largest of them, mm-hmm. of all of these sites. But they designate uh, three castles, 15 forts, eight ruins with partially standing structures, and two sites with, quote, traces of former fortifications. Mm, okay. So the last ones are basically just like kind of some stones on the ground. Like remnants. Like, not a lot of detail. But Cape Coast Castle and three other castles are whole and standing and very big. Um, they're all by the water. And indeed, they had the upper floors where the white Englishmen or Dutchmen or whomever would live. And there were dungeons that would hold the kidnapped and enslaved people before they were sent across the ocean to their final destination. Yes. And I actually believe that this is kind of back to me watching a lot of reality competition shows. Our favorite. I don't believe it was this specific castle, but one of these sites was a... um, I don't know if it was a pit stop, but it was one of the stops along a leg of the Amazing Race. That is very interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, fun fact there. The more you know. Um, and I actually pulled a quote off of the UNESCO website mm-hmm. that discusses why they feel these are, are important sites to preserve. And I feel like it just sums it up really well. Okay. So instead of my own words, I'm going to use theirs. Uh, they say that uh, all of these former sites can be seen as a, quote, unique collective historical monument. A monument not only to the evils of the slave trade, but also to nearly four centuries of pre-colonial Afro-European commerce on the basis of equality rather than that of the colonial basis of inequality. They represent significantly and emotively the continuing history of a European-African encounter over five centuries and the starting point of the African diaspora. Wow. Yeah. So these these sites were used as trading as trading ports between Africa and Europe in like a much more equitable way for a long time before the beginning of the slave trade. And I think it's also important that these are these sites are remembered because for so many Africans this was their last time seeing their home. Yes. Like these castles on the ship on the shorelines were the last time as they were leaving to on this hellish journey. That was the last sight they had to see of their home. Mm-hmm. So I do think it's I mean I'm all for preserving any monuments we can. 100%. Oh, especially yeah. Especially something like this. And again, UNESCO touches on something which even, you know, in this episode that we're not doing, which is that demonstrating that African history doesn't touch Europeans at all in many places. Yeah. Like, you do not need to talk about the transatlantic slave trade to talk about the history of Africa. Oh, of course. Um, and so we can't wait to do that in the future. But we were very happy to be reading this book first. Yes, this book was amazing yes and so the two different lines we've brought it up over and over and over are the most important part of the book is the separation of these two sisters and that is also kind of symbolically represented by the two different kingdoms as they are called that are in ghana like i said southern ghana the asante and the fonti Mm-hmm. Um, Asante historically was the larger of the two, and I think that is pretty well represented in the book. Yes. Um, there were some interwarring between each other. Historically, as is represented in the book, the role of the Asante was uh, to deliver captives to the Europeans yes. for to be sold into slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a really you know controversial but existing element of it that African people did sell other African people into slavery. Yeah. Uh, most often in exchange for guns, ammunition, and other weapons uh, from Europe. 
Um, and that was the role of the Fonti. They were kind of the middlemen getting the European weapons from the English or the Dutch to the Asante. And that that idea of you know some Africans selling others into slavery, um, that definitely comes into play in a lot of Athea's descendants' chapters as they come to reckon with that fact and their role in it. Yes, because they're mixed with Fonti lineage, but also with English lineage. Yes. And they have names like James, uh, Collins, and, you know, yeah. these sorts of things. They don't have, they don't keep their traditional Fonti names. Yes. And even some of the later generations can no longer speak the language Fonti. Uh, so especially towards the beginning of the book, we're shown conflict between the Fonti and the Asante. They fight each other. But gener- over over the course of time, we see that that infighting is taken advantage of by the British and used to overthrow them both. Um, so though the Asante is briefly victorious, they are not able to have their own um, independence under, yes. under the British law. Um, and we see towards the end of the book something that happened in real life, which is called the War of the Golden Stool. This made a very brief appearance. Erin, do you remember it? I do, yeah. Um, and it's actually something I think I learned about in high school at some point. Some, something about it sounds really familiar to me, maybe from like AP art history or something. Okay, very interesting, because I had never heard of it before. Uh, but essentially the Asante have an artifact called the Golden Stool, which is still it's a real artifact. It still exists. Um, that basically they believe the Asante king derives his power from this stool. It's a very, maybe not sacred uh, artifact, but it's something that's very important. After a quick Google search on the golden stool is actually one of the figures you have to memorize for AP art history. So that is There why you go. All right. And essentially when the British took over from the Asante, the British governor insisted that he be allowed to sit on the stool, that he had the stool. And the Asante were absolutely not having it. And that led to the War of the Golden Stool. Um, and unfortunately, we know that the British were victorious in that war. However, they did not get the stool. So that was, you so, know, in my research, I was happy to see that yeah, they never did get yeah. their hands on the it. The British have too many artifacts that don't belong to them. Exactly. So. Well, and in the book, we don't, we see that the British have demanded custody of the stool, but we don't, again, we don't know what happens after that. Yeah. Um, Which is what's kind of cool about this generational format. I know we keep going on about it, but you get glimpses in, and then if you want to know more, you have to research yourself. Yeah, and we do. Luckily, we we do the work for you. Um, So that was the end of my history deep dive. Do you have anything we want to wrap up? Um, I think we're at a good point to move into our calculator. All right, let's go. So as you know, thanks to data scientist Ashley, we have a calculator based on five different categories. Historical accuracy, vibes, which is just kind of how we felt about the book, prose, originality, and characters. And this averages out from a score on a scale of one, which is flop, to five, which is five stars. Um, So I'll go ahead because I have mine up in front of me. Historical accuracy, I gave it a five. Vibes, five. Prose, five. Originality, five. Characters, five. You guessed it. This was a straight five-star book for me. That is crazy. Which is a five for me. I put that in Storygraph as soon as I finished two. This one and Snowflower were immediate fives for me. Yeah, knock out of the park. Incredible. So we haven't invited you yet on the pod, yeah, Jesse. You are more than welcome. We would love to talk to you about this book and your other book, which we're both going to read. We promise that we'll read it. Um, so I have a slightly different ranking. Okay. I do not have fives across the board. Historical accuracy, I did give it a five, which you might okay. be surprised by because I have seemed reluctant to yeah, do that you're in a the past. Stingy. I'm kind of like 
Does it match a quick Wikipedia search? Sure. Um, and I think for me, it was the way that she used the history that made it a five. It's not just that it was all right and all there. Yeah. She used it very masterfully. Okay, that's fair. So that's why I'm giving her a five for this. For vibes, I gave it a three. This is my only like slightly lower ranking. Mm-hmm. My thing about this book for me, I think because we move between the different chapters so quickly and we yeah. never return to those characters, I enjoyed it while I was reading it. When I when it wasn't in my hands, I wasn't thinking about it. That's fair. Which is, I think, my own issue. It's objectively a very fabulous book. I just didn't. It wasn't till closer to the end that I was emotionally drawn into it. And that's why the vibes category is so important because there could be, you know, a world acclaimed best book in the world, which I know we have one that's going to be contentious debate coming up on the pod. Um, that really resonates with you, and I just really hate it. So yeah. vibes is important to consider. Yeah, So, but it's not low. It's only a three. It's fine, you know. Uh, pros, four. Originality, five. Like we said, the layout mm-hmm. of this book, even though I think it did cause some of my issues. Yeah. The, they were only minor issues, and I think that the narrative structure was a strength rather than a weakness yes. at the end of the day. And characters, four. So to me, that's an average of a 4.2. Yeah. And I gave this a 4.25 on Storygraph. Wow. So Ashley's calculator is, again, winning the day. Very accurate. And speaking of Storygraph, I don't think we've actually mentioned this on the pod, although it is most definitely on our socials. Um, we actually have a Storygraph challenge set up for this season, so you can read along with us. Woo. Um, we will be doing this for every season so that you can keep track of you know, what you're reading, what your thoughts are, what our thoughts are, and maybe... If you think it's a five, if you think it's a flop. Exactly. If maybe if we get sponsorships and we get rich, there'll be some prizes along the way. Ooh. But you can search up the first season's challenge, Fiber Flop Season 1 Reading Challenge, and read along with us. And um, if you do not have Storygraph, this is a good time to get Storygraph. We love Storygraph. Um, we are Storygraph supremacists over Goodreads. And if you're a Goodreads user and you've been using it for a long time and you're happy, then by all means stay where you are. But however, you can port all of your Goodreads data over to Storygraph. Yes. So you can move without losing your data, just yes. so you know. But in terms of this book, Grace, I think we can both agree that it is a five. We'll give it a five. We'll give it a five star. So yeah, Jesse, thank you for an incredible read and for encouraging us to learn something new about Ghana. Yeah. And this is our second five of the season so far. Yeah, which so, is pretty incredible. Honestly, given that we're episode four, yeah. That's pretty good. That's fifty percent that's a fifty percent five rate. We haven't really had a flop yet, so that's incredible. But I promise we have flops coming. The flop do not worry, the flops are coming. Next week we'll be reading A Land Remembered by Patrick D. Smith which is of personal great importance to me as a girl who grew up in Florida and having read this at least two times that I can remember in school, I have a lot to say. If you were a Florida school child, you will definitely want to listen to this episode. And if like me, you were not a Florida school child, you can listen and get the outsider's perspective. Exactly. It was very I'm, fun to read this book I'm and really, cosplay as a Floridian. I'm really curious to hear what someone who didn't read as a child thinks about it. Anyways, um, in the meantime, you can be sure to follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Fiverrflop underscore pod. And if you have anything else you want to tell us, you can not only email us at Fiverrfloppodcast at gmail.com, we also have a recommendation form in all the bios of our social media that you can fill out and suggest books that you want to hear on the podcast. And until next time, happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading.